0: David Ramey of Ramey Wine Cellars and also Sidebar Cellars. Hello, sir. How are you? Thank you for having me. So you actually went to UC Santa Cruz right about the same time Randall Graham did.
1: We were there at the same time and we didn't know each other except once I was going down to visit a girlfriend at UCLA. And in those days, this was about 1971, on a, a corkboard, you put a a little piece of paper with your phone number. And you said, you know, driving to LA looking for riders to share gas. (laughs) And, and he answered. And so we, we didn't know each other, but we drove to LA and from Santa Cruz down to about King city, we had the most intense philosophical discussion. And so that was my crossing paths with Randall at Santa Cruz. And then we both went right. out and worked a little bit and, and ended up at Davis at the same time. And so, yeah, I say I went to school with Randall twice.
0: When you went to UC Davis, you were with a whole generation of people that also became well-known in the wine industry.
1: I remember this was, uh, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Vietnam was happening. Uh, there was a lot of, nobody wanted to. Be a doctor or a lawyer, or in those days, MBA almost wasn't a thing. And I had two goals. I didn't want to have to show up at work at eight o'clock or at a specific time, and I didn't want to have to wear a tie. And so we all got out and worked as a waiter or whatever else for a little while. And then realized, wow, I can't do this for the rest of my life. How how am I going to actually make some money? And fortunately, this option with this aesthetic component presented itself to many of us, and we all ended up at Davis in the same cohort. You know, Kathy Corson and, and David Graves and Dick Ward from Saintsbury, John Consgard, Tom Peterson, longtime uh, Monterey Vineyards uh, souverain, Ed Killian, who taught me to use a gas chromatograph, uh, Mark Lyon, longtime Sebastiani, Randall Graham. So anyway, yeah, it was, uh, it was really kind of a neat time. I was there from 76 to 79, so late 70s.
0: The thing about that generation of people at Davis is that they all got jobs immediately out of school.
1: When I took the decision in, in 74, 75 to go to school and study wine, it wasn't a thing at all. And people I knew, friends were saying, wow, wine, really? What's up with that? But then it started to take off. And in the time, in the 70s, there were some tax credits to planting vineyards. So more grapes were going in and the wine industry was ascendant. And everybody, all of my colleagues, every single one got a full charge winemaking job right out of the gate. And I'm the only guy really who said, I don't want that because... I don't know how to make wine. I want to go work with somebody who did. So after my year abroad with Muex in Pomerol, I got the job I wanted as assistant winemaker to Zelma Long at Simi. She had just left Mondavi to go to Simi, and it just worked out. Ultimately, I would say, you know, I didn't learn winemaking as much from Zelma, just like you don't learn to make wine at UC Davis. But I learned production management, and that's a, almost a different skill set from, quote, wine making. It's analogous to the difference between a chef getting the ingredients, cooking the food, and plating it. But there's a lot more to running a restaurant than that.
0: The thing about Zelma Long at Simi is that she was starting to think about oxidation of white wine,
1: right? We were uh, filtering everything, uh, both with filter pads and cartridges, sterile filtering. And the principal purveyor of filter pads was Seitzwerke, or SWK. And the the representative was a very cultured and civilized gentleman named Fritz Nerat, And he gave us a couple of papers that a researcher who was researching with the support of Seitzwerke, named Müllerspath, Müllerspath, And this was about allowing the natural polyphenol oxidase enzymes in grape juice to run their course and oxidize the polyphenols, the flavonoid tannins from the grape skins in white grapes. People don't think of white wine having tannin, but all the color in white wine comes from tannin. So this is why the richer white wines like Gewürztraminer, Alsatian Pinot Gris, Chardonnay have a deeper color and the the lighter white wines like Chenin Blanc, for example, are lower in phenolic material. So the, that color can come from tannin that came out of the grape skin or it can come from oak barrels if it's barrel fermented with newer barrels. So the this is the same enzyme back to the enzyme polyphenol oxidase or sometimes it's called tyrosinase, the same enzyme that if you cut an apple and let it sit on your kitchen counter, you can watch it turn brown. Exact same thing. And in the past, people had always added sulfur dioxide to grape juice, and that kept the juice green. And if you thought that you were going to make a white wine that was paler and not dark or brown, You needed the green juice. And it turned out to be the opposite that if you didn't add the sulfur, let the polyphenol oxidase enzymes oxidize those tannins naturally. Juice turns brown. That's the tannins in the oxidized state. Unoxidized, they're colorless. Oxidized, they're brown. But then once they oxidize, they have a charge. It's a little negative charge on the carbonyl oxygen because there's an electron swarm. And then with that negative charge, they're attracted to the yeast cells when the yeast grow because the yeast are proteins, so they're positively charged. And so then those oxidized tannins precipitate out after the fermentation, when the yeast settle out. And so what we were left with is wines that were paler in color and lower in tannins than those that had been, quote, protected by the sulfur addition, green juice. So basically you have a green juice, brown juice. Now, this is a little technical, but those enzymes, I did some studies while I was at Matanzas Creek on a double-beam scanning UV spectrophotometer, those enzymes were active for about six hours. And during that time, they very rapidly and specifically scavenge oxygen and apply that oxygen to these tannins. So the juice as a whole is not oxidizing, and the faulty thinking that was common was, well, I had the sulfur, so I have green juice, so it's not oxidizing. The flaw with that is really all that was happening is that the sulfur dioxide inhibits the enzyme activity, the polyphenol oxidase enzyme. So the enzyme is blocked from doing what it otherwise would naturally do. And in the meantime, all that oxygen is still around, oxidizing aromas and flavors and things like that. So it was like turning the logic on its head. Wow, so the oxidized juice is going to be better than the green juice. Now, not everybody will agree, but not everybody has the experience or has thought about it in that way.
0: So, what would have been the normal protocol for making a Chardonnay in the 70s in
1: California? During the 70s, initially grapes were destemmed, crushed, and pumped to a press. Pressed and then settled in a tank, racked to another tank, add the yeast, ferment it in the tank, and then rack off the lees, and then go to barrels. That was sort of standard, old-school California. In the 70s, people started doing skin contact. So they'd crush the grapes, add sulfur, and then let it sit in the tank. And this was in the days before night harvest. So a lot of these grapes came in, you know, in the afternoon, hot, and they were extracting a lot of tannins. And at the time, people thought of tannin as antioxidative, but I soon realized that this is red wine logic. I call it red wine logic, because in red wine, you have tannin and in color, anthocyanin, and First, they form a dimer and then a trimer, and then a tetramer, and, and then a polymer. And Vern Singleton at U.C. Davis used to call that autooxidation," that, that tannin oxidizes and then it regenerates itself by polymerizing. So in that sense, in red wine, tannin is antioxidative, but in white wine, it's not because there's no anthocyanin. So once you have an oxidized tannin, it's just there. It's oxidized. It's brown and coarse and heavy and thick. So I ended up doing an experiment and published a paper on the effects of uh, skin contact temperature on Chardonnay juice and wine. And the result of that was a lot of the big wineries, St. Jean, uh, Barringer, Mondavi, started buying must-heat exchangers like we had, to cool the must before the skin contact, but people were still doing the skin contact. And then when I left Simi to go to Matanzas Creek, I started thinking about, well, so we want to lower the tannins. We got the oxidized juice to do this, but what about if we eliminate skin contact and then, you know, minimize the tannins that way? And I was starting to spend time in Burgundy. I'd worked in Bordeaux in 79, but hadn't been to Burgundy until 86. And um, the common thing was for them to crush, but not destem, the grape clusters, Chardonnay grape clusters, and then pump them a short distance into the axial feed of the new bladder presses, tank presses. And um, I eliminated skin contact at Matanzas, and then and then the next thing I thought, well, what if we could eliminate the little screw conveyor and the pump and the grinding and the tearing. And so I think about 1987, I was the first one in California to put a plywood hopper on top of the press and and look at whole cluster pressing. And the whole goal of that, whole cluster pressing, traditional in Champagne, the whole point of that was to minimize the tannins in the white wine and make a more delicate white wine. The problem with the skin contact Chardonnays is twofold. Number one, they were really kind of coarse and, and, and thick and heavy. And secondly, they didn't age. Three years later, those tannins that you had protected with sulfur would turn brown in the bottle. And so that was like kind of a two-path development toward improving shelf life of California white wine was the oxidized juice and then the whole cluster pressing.
0: And you mentioned crushing the grapes before. What was your approach as you moved into Matanzas on crushing?
1: You know, I always thought, I mean, we don't make Burgundy in California, but I always thought if we're working with Chardonnay or Cabernet or Merlot, we ought to maybe go where they've been working with those varieties for hundreds of years and see how they do it. So the standard in Burgundy was, and it, in those days, the state-of-the-art Burgundian crusher was a Demoisie. They would not de-stem. The cage was out, but they would crush, and then it would go into this elliptical lobe pump and pump into the press.
0: Do you find it different with
1: the amount of leaves when you crush? So when when you do pump the must like that, even if it's whole cluster crushed and pumped but not destemmed, you create a lot of solids. Overall, yeah, maybe as much as six percent. The next day, after you settle, about 6% of your total volume could be grape solids. So normally what you need to do then is have a lees filter and filter that and put it back into the juice. With whole cluster pressing, we have a percent and a half or 1% solids, of which we take some, so that basically there's no juice lees left over, not yeast lees, but juice lees, and there's a little coating on the bottom of the tank, which we just wash away. There's a real production at advantage to whole cluster pressing. Now the disadvantage from a classical perspective was if you destemmed and crushed, you could fit about two and a half times as much grapes in the press as with whole cluster pressing. So there's an initial investment in buying a bigger press.
0: Because sometimes when I've visited wineries during harvest, the choke point in terms of the production is the pressing. Is
1: the press. Yeah. Having built several wineries and bought equipment and, you know, it's just always a mistake to skimp on equipment size. The
0: reason you're saying that is that if you're going to do whole cluster pressing, you have to put the clusters in there. You need
1: it. Yeah. You need the space. You need the bigger press.
0: But back to that lees question. I mean, say juice were to stay in contact with more lees, more solids for longer. Would that have organoleptic differences in the, in the juice?
1: That's a good question, Levy, and it brings up another topic, and that is the reductive character of particularly of some Burgundies, or recently Australia and New Zealand have become enamored of this, this sort of matchstick, which is a disulfide character, two sulfides. And you can get that several ways. You can put your juice into a barrel that has sulfur gas in it, SO2 gas. Uh, But also you tend to get it if you have a lot of solids. And so if those solids that I talked about, if you have too many of them, you can get that matchstick character, which for some producers, uh, Buisson in the old days comes to mind. But I have a perspective on that, and that is that that reductive character is an artifact of the cellar. So it's not terroir, and um, I don't mind just a little little tiny bit of gunflint, just as I don't mind a little bit of brett and wines that I enjoy, but I think you need to be careful with how much. It was only maybe a half a dozen years ago that I thought, instead of racking the juice the next day, perfectly clean through the racking door, which we had always done, we started racking from the bottom valve. Typically, a bottom valve, when you move juice or wine from one tank to another, if you hook up to the bottom valve, we call that a a movement because you're moving it from one tank to another. If you go through the racking valve and then through the door, that's a rack. You're racking off sediment. And we'd always racked clean off of That lees, but I started a a few years ago racking from the bottom valve. And again, I said earlier that with whole cluster, we have a very small amount of lees. And the lighter it sort of becomes if it flows, it goes. And so we started taking some of the lighter lees with us and leaving just a a coating of heavy lees on, on the bottom of the tank. Now, again, For your listeners, I want to distinguish between yeast lees, and at this point, we're talking about ground up grape skin lees. That's two different things. We use the same word, but don't confuse them. This is grape skin lees, and it can contain uh, sulfur containing amino acids, and even it's a fault, but a little grain or two of sulfur dust left from late spraying. And so you can get some of this matchstick character from that. And in fact, I think that some of our wines more recently have more a matchstick than they did early on because of that, because we're racking from the bottom valve and taking some of that lease. And again, I don't mind it a little bit and it varies a little, but we're opening with the 2015 first vintage of Rocchioli Vineyard Chardonnay. There's a touch in there. It's like a trace of Brett in Red's. I personally don't mind it. It's a level of complexity, but I don't think that ideologues should conflate it with terroir. It's not terroir. It's an artifact of the cellar.
0: Let's go back a little bit. So Simi, they were known for Chardonnay and Cabernet, and they were known for a Chardonnay that was aged in French Barrique, right? True. What was your thoughts about cooperage in that time? Because during the 80s, things really changed in terms of access to cooperage.
1: I was the beneficiary. I have been the beneficiary for my entire career of Zelma and Mondavi's relationship with the Francois Frere family, with Jean-Anouel Francois, and with the Terenceau Cooperage, And I still use them to this day. Chardonnay and Pinot and Seurat. Principally with Francois Frere and the Bordelais varieties, principally with Terenceau. I don't specify the oak source, I don't specify the the toast. I do pay extra for three-year air-dried wood, but I joke that, you know, Jean Francois and I have a deal, is that I don't tell him how to make barrels and he doesn't tell me how to make wine. My experience is that if you try to change the way that a Cooper Normally makes barrels, the result isn't really good. If you like what that cooper is doing, you buy more barrels from that. If you don't, you buy less and you go to another cooper. But you don't try to get them to change their routine because they have their routine developed over decades. I mean, and here I'll, I'll veer into you know, Chardonnay is the most compelling and popular white wine in the world. Because it's the red wine of whites. It's so complex. It's so interesting. And it's the red wine of whites for two reasons. Barrel fermentation and malolactic. Now, there's technique to those things, you know. Can you use too much new oak? Absolutely. Uh, It doesn't mean that the answer to too much new oak is fermenting in a stainless steel tank then you take away part of the complexity that makes Chardonnay so compelling. In in the same vein, I personally think that non-mallow Chardonnays are a shadow of what they could be. And just because you go through mallow doesn't mean that you end up with a fat, flabby wine.
0: What was your development of thinking in terms of mallow for Chardonnay?
1: At Simi... I came to conclude that we had over acidulated everything. And when I went to Matanzas, I decided I was only going to put through malolactic those Chardonnay juice lots whose chemistry would allow that without having to acidulate. So I did that in 85. I did that in 86. But in 86, which was the first year I went to Burgundy, in 86, I did an experiment with the San Giacomo Green Acres vineyard where I pressed into one tank and then the next day racked, split into two tanks. So we've got identical juice now. One of them I acidulated a little bit with tartaric acid and one I did not. Then we went to barrels. I was inoculating with yeast in those days and inoculating for mallow. And then I went to Burgundy for the first time in November. And so I got back and the wines were finishing mallow because we inoculated, we pushed through, and I sulfured. And I still remember that great gentleman and great writer, Gerald Asher, came and tasted with us. And I showed him the comparison and he said, Well, the mallow is, is clearly superior. And so from 87 on, I always did full mallow. And then, of course, you have the advantage with full mallow versus partial or non-mallow is that you don't have to worry about not filtering. So we don't own a filter, everything's unfiltered, and because the wine is dry and it's finished mallow, that's not a problem.
0: Because the alternative would be, if it didn't go through mallow, you'd either have to hit it with a lot of sulfur or you'd have to filter it because something would have to stabilize it.
1: So with the, that vintage, the 86 Matanzas, which was the last one that I made a Chardonnay that wasn't malolactic, it was partial. So then we blended it. So now it's partial mallow, but we had some lots that were ML plus and some lots that were ML minus. And then I don't remember exactly, but I'm sure I sterile filtered it because otherwise that would be too too risky.
0: When do you like a mallow to start for Chardonnay?
1: That's another good question. Traditionally in Burgundy, the mallow kind of starts in the winter and maybe completes in the spring, you know, classic thing where the the sap rises, you know, you listen to the barrel and it's crackling and bubbling. That's due to two reasons. One, the yeast, they're not autolyzing, but they are leaking some amino acids out through their cell walls. And those amino acids can be food for the bacteria. So we've got six months after fermentation we have a little more food for the bacteria. And then also the cellar starts to warm up a little. So the mallow happens in the spring. So that's the tradition when you don't inoculate, which we don't. And one of the advantages of it is that the bacteria, the lactobacilli and leuconostoc that carry out the malolactic fermentation, they metabolize some of the oak compounds like ferulic acid. And so if you push that through, So many winemakers say, oh, I want to put the things to beds by Christmas so I can go skiing or to Hawaii or to sleep. But then your percentage new oak can be more pronounced, whereas if that takes place three, four, five months later, the bacteria can help integrate the oak. So that's an advantage of the more natural later malolactic.
0: You feel like when you have mallow and barrel it's a more seamless integration of the wood.
1: Yes. As well as the barrel fermentation itself, the yeast integrate the wood in some fashion. It used to be, you asked how Chardonnay was made in the old days in the 70s and 80s, you know, and then you'd ferment in a tank, rack off the lees because lees made stinky wine, that was the wisdom at the time, you get reductive character, rack off the lees and go to barrel and then to the extent that you were using new barrels, maybe you did that in, in October, but by January, your wine was over-oaked because you have no, nothing to integrate the oak. Yeast lees is tremendous in so many ways, but integrating oak is huge.
0: Having it go through full mallow and then having it be unfiltered, that idea really took hold for Chardonnay in the 80s in California, right? Like Newton unfiltered, Helen Turley comes on the scene, Robert Parker championing
1: this. Since you mentioned Bob Parker, the comment I would make there is that it is unfortunate that Bob has linguistically linked unfined and unfiltered, joined them at the hip. These are two totally separate things. So filtration is a modern industrial invention, forcing the wine with a pump under some amount of pressure through a, a matrix which takes the particles out. And there's a certain amount of electrostatic stripping there too. It's not just getting the particles out via what's called torturous path or pore size. There's an electrostatic attraction which literally takes out color and and flavor early in the filtration process. Fining, on the other hand, is a traditional artisanal part of the craft of making fine wine for centuries. And when I say fining, I don't mean modern industrial fining agents like PVPP, which is polyvinyl, polyperolidone, but traditional agents of which, with the exception of bentonite, bentonite's a clay from Wyoming, and then all the other fining agents traditionally are proteins. So egg white for red wine. Egg white only works in red wine. It doesn't work in white wine. It doesn't clarify. It just sits there. But in white wine, icing glass is just a beautiful fining agent clarifies the wine in french you call it col de poisson or fish glue it's the dried air bladder the sturgeon fish so these are very traditional fining agents milk also whole milk we still use uh, sometimes some whole milk depending on the trial but casein powder and these are 20 or 30 parts per million so just a tiny amount But what those protein agents do, because at this point now the tannins in the wine are negatively charged, so these protein-fining agents are positively charged, and you have some electrostatic bonding, and the fining agents clarify the wine, and they also take out some of the tannin, and so they smooth the palate. And so it's not a question of stripping the wine, I think the best analogy is it's like using a a piece of triple-aught steel wool to polish a, a fine piece of wood furniture. You know, it doesn't change the shape of the chair. It just polishes it.
0: I've met a number of producers who seem to be opposed to finding. It's because of a lack of experience. We've talked a lot about Chardonnay, but actually in the 80s there, Matanzas Creek really developed a reputation for Merlot and for Sauvignon Blanc,
1: right? Right. At the time, the biggest thing was, of course I had worked with Etablissement Jean-Pierre Moex in 79 and uh, maintained a relationship with Christian and with Jean-Claude Barraway. And the thing was, the biggest difference was that they never acidified a red wine in Bordeaux. In Burgundy, acidification is fairly common. Adding tartaric acid to the juice of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir is fairly common, depending on the year and the vineyard. But in Bordeaux, it just didn't acidify. Whereas in California, this was the height of UC Davis pH over everything, and people were acidifying extensively. And I just said, well, I'm not going to do that because that's not the way it's done in Bordeaux, where I where I worked. And so, I mean, right away, I think with 85, 86, but then particularly with the 87, I think Bob Parker, who was coming to taste with me, recognized a a stylistic kinship with Pomerol. So
0: 89 would have been
1: Bordeaux? Christian asked me to come back and work uh, with Mouax again because he had in mind that we would work together. So I did, and my now uh, wife, Carla went with me, and she picked grapes while I kind of tasted and drove around with Jean-Claude and Christian. But it wasn't time to work together yet. I thought we would probably work together immediately, but he said, take a job. And so the, the job I took was with Chalk Hill. And initially then, afterwards, while I was with Chalk Hill, he had in mind a Sonoma project, Merlot-based Sonoma project as he said, a more feminine wine because he considered Dominus a very masculine wine. And we looked at a number of properties and, and finally made an offer. And then he had a couple of bad business developments, a large bulk wine sale he was stiffed on, and, and there were a couple of developments, kind of fax, everything was, was pre-email the facts saying, you know, sorry. But then shortly thereafter, the next year, I think he asked me to come over and take over managing Dominus and get the winery built. So that's how we did end up working together for a couple of years.
0: So we did skip over the Chalk Hill time there mm-hmm. because in between you going to Bordeaux again, and then working at Dominus, you worked at Chalk Hill and they really developed a reputation for Chardonnay.
1: Yeah, we did some really good work. I eliminated crushing and I bought a pump, a Waukesha 320 with six-inch ports that we would screw feed and then pump whole cluster into the press. There were dejuicing tanks over the press that they'd been putting grapes into, but of course I was completely opposed to skin contact, so I just didn't use those. Eventually, we took them down, converted them into tanks, put them in the cellar. So we did good work there, and then that's when I started working pretty completely with native yeast, not yet native bacteria. It was all barrel fermented. I mean, we were making 50,000 cases of barrel fermented native yeast, full mallow, Chardonnay.
0: So I started in the 90s, in the late 90s. And the thing that stood out to me about Chalk Hill was the texture of the wines, like on the Chardonnay coming from the sonoma couture kind of dominance in the market before Marcuson really took off chuck hill was like a big change from the sonoma couture kind of palette it was much
1: lusher sonoma couture was non mallow and i'm completely textural in my appreciation of wine i don't care if it's apples or bananas. I want to know how ripe the banana was. Is it mushy? Is it is it hard? Is it green? It's a tactility thing in the palate. Uh, And a lot of people disagree with me on this, but basically I smell a wine if it smells fine, that's great. I mean, as long as there's no faults, you know, it's not oxidized, doesn't have too much sulfur, it's not got volatile acidity, there's no hydrogen sulfide. But what does it feel like? Because that's so important. What's the texture in the palate? Does it taste good? Does it make you want to take a second sip? And that's where, so we're using native yeast. So we had a longer fermentation and that gave a textural advantage. And then we were leaving it on the lees. Now there I was bottling before. So I only had about eight months of lees contact before the next vintage. Was not unfiltered. We did filter, but I was almost all the way to the way I make wine now. Now we leave longer on the lees, either 12 months or 20 months, and we don't filter.
0: After you left working for Fred Firth and you went to work for Christian Moyex again, you were in Napa at Dominus, right?
1: Yeah, and I worked in Napa for six years, two with Dominus and four with Rudd.
0: Especially in terms of the blending table and the creating of a wine? when you have a bunch of glasses in front of you and you say, we're going to put these glasses together and that's going to become the wine,
1: what did you see working with Jean-Claude Barraway? Here's a story I'm going to tell, that Jean-Claude told me once. He said, what is, this was in 89, I was working with him over there. He said, what is with you Americans? You always want to know what the varieties are. Here's the deal. So you have Cabernet and you have Merlot and Cabernet is true, is a more tannic variety than Merlot. But on any one property, you have a variety of soils. And um, clay soil gives wine strength, he said in French, meaning more tannic, And uh, gravelly soil gives wine elegance. So, would you plant the Cabernet on clay and the Merlot on gravel? No, because you would exaggerate the natural tendencies of the varieties. But if you plant the Merlot on clay, it gives it strength. Plant the Cabernet on gravel, it gives it elegance, and then it can be very difficult, even for the winemaker who made the wine, to tell the varieties apart because you've made the best Bordeaux-style wine you can. That's an intro way to think about, you know, it isn't blending magic in terms of X percent Cabernet Franc or this or that. It's like, what's the wine taste like? What's successful is it in particularly for texture? Uh, as opposed to aroma. And then, yeah, how do they fit together? To a certain degree, your good stuff goes in the grand vin and your medium stuff goes in the deuxième vin and then the the weak stuff goes in the the claret. It's not that complicated, at least my memory of working with Jean-Claude. It's like, wow, these are all the really good wines. Let's put them together. So, these days when you visit
0: Dominus, the Cabernet is on a split canopy.
1: And it was when I was there. And that's based on the vigor of the soil. Every site, every soil has what the soil scientists call a vigor capacity. And the way to think about this is just growing tomatoes in your backyard. If you've got the hard scrabble clay and you put your tomatoes there, you're going to get a certain size tomato plant. But if you have raised beds with compost, really rich soil, you're going to get big tomato plants. Same thing with grapevines. If the soil and the available water, which there's some water running out of the myocamas underneath the domino site, you know, you need to channel that vigor. And the split canopy gives an outlet for the plant to balance its vegetative tendencies
0: So you transitioned eventually to Rudd, which actually at the time would have been Girard.
1: Yeah, Les had just bought it in 96, he bought it. And with the intention of turning it into Rudd Estate, I kind of took over, even while I was still with Dominus, like November 97. So I made the first four vintages of Rudd. And then I was able to move our production for Ramey Wine Cellars, which we started 96 Vintage was able to grow our production in the, in the caves at Rudd. So you were really specializing in red
0: with Dominus and then at least in the beginning with
1: Rudd. One of my objections to Christian when when he was trying to get me to come over and manage Dominus was Christian, you don't make any, you don't make any white wine. And he said, well, you want to make a little Chardonnay on the side? That's okay. And no light bulb went off. I was like, well, okay, I don't know how to do that. And that was the beginning uh, of Remy Wine Cellars. We started with. 260 cases of, of Hyde Vineyard Chardonnay in 1996. And we sold it two years later because it was 20 months in barrel. You left it in barrel 20 months? That was very uncommon at the time. Almost everybody in California bottled before the next vintage. Because if you don't, then you have to have tanks to hold the wine. But one of my stagiaires, trainees at Chalk Hill in 1993 was uh, Pierre-Yves Collin now uh, Pierre-Yves Collin-Moray. And uh, in 2000, I was in Burgundy for a conference on terroir, and I had lunch with Pierre-Yves and his dad, Marc Collin, from Saint-Aubin. It was Marc who I'd met at a tasting who asked me if his son could come work with me. And one of the things Marc said was, yeah, in the old days, all the wines needed two winters in barrel. And it kind of struck me. And he said that both about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, two winters in barrel. So when I developed my own brand, I started with bottling in June of the following vintage. So that totals about 20 months in, in barrel. It's still not common. It, it's uh, A lot of people in Burgundy do 12 months. And that's what we do for our Russian River Chardonnay and our Sonoma Coast Chardonnay. But the single vineyards they spend 20 months on the, on the lees, never racked. Juice goes in, ferment starts, topped up, stays on the lees the whole time. And uh, this is a Denis de Bourdieu thing, The recently passed away researcher from the University of Bordeaux. He pinpointed a compound glutathione, which is, a, I believe, a sulfur-containing amino acid that comes out of yeast with time on the yeast lees. And it turns out... Uh, You know, I consulted for Jean-Charles Boisset for a while for his uh, Buena Vista project, and he engaged Denis de Bourdieu and his team to come over and research Premox. And the main thing he found was that, well, people just aren't adding enough sulfur to the wine, particularly at bottling. But in the course of that report paper, he also talked about glutathione. And I think that that long time on the Lees is part of that.
0: But again, what you're saying is that those are the lees that are the dead yeast cells. Those
1: are yeast cell lees now, not so much the grape particles.
0: You're saying you don't like the rack for that period of time, so you put it into new barrel.
1: Only we're not using a lot of new oak. The village wines, which spend 12 months on lees and barrel, are only about 15% new. And the single vineyards are about 25% new right now. I just don't like it when the oak stands out. and so. We started backing off on the oak. So in the 90s, there was a phloxa crisis
0: in Napa. Oh, yeah. Did you see people replanting with different kind of vine material or rootstock
1: after that? Completely. And almost most significantly, the right varieties in the right places. You know, one of the huge trends over my 40 years in Sonoma and and Napa is the Realization of where grape varieties are going to do better or worse. And so over the years, Cabernet has become dominant in Napa Valley because it's a late season variety. Cabernet's late season, Merved's late season. I mean, maybe that's the future for Napa Valley, is Merved, because Napa is blocked from the ocean influence by the Mycomas range. Whereas Sonoma as a whole is maybe nine degrees cooler than Oakville and any. Any given day, that's just Glen Ellen Kenwood, 9 degrees cooler. You get out towards Sebastopol, you're like another 9 degrees cooler. And then the early season varieties, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, do much better in cooler areas. So all that replant and new planting has allowed us to better fine-tune where we planted. Back in the 70s, when they had those tax dodges, people didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about clones and they would plant a whole bunch of varieties in the same spot. At Simi in 1980, we were buying Pinot Noir from Jim Murphy in Geyserville. You know, I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. Okay. So that's the most significant change. And essentially the march of cool climate varieties to the coast. That's huge. You know, areas that weren't planted 25 years ago now are producing stellar Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And that's, In part, the result of the Phylloxera debacle. Could you sort of, grape variety by grape variety, give me
0: a sense of the progression in protocol, winemaking handling of, say, what would have been standard in the 70s for Sauvignon Blanc, and then how that changed till now? I'm just saying in general. You know, every winery is different, everybody does something different, but the general idea about a great variety can we just kind of run through some of the key ones like Pinot Syrah Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc
1: well let me start with Chardonnay because I think we've covered that a little bit but basically the evolution of Chardonnay style in California has seen the triumph of the Burgundian method and when I say Burgundian method I mean direct to press one way or another barrel fermented aged on a malactic that's standard Sauvignon Blanc is complicated. You know, in the old days, uh, 70s and 80s, before we had canopy management, Sauvignon Blanc could be really vegetal. Canned asparagus, you know, artichoke juice. And that turned a lot of people off to Sauvignon Blanc. So then you had a period, perhaps in the 90s, when people in Napa and Sonoma were making kind of Sauvignon Blanc as Chardonnay, barrel fermented, putting through malolactic, really trying to minimize. Then New Zealand kind of reinvented Sauvignon Blanc, the hyper gooseberry style. So now California Sauvignon Blancs that win contests are hyper varietal. So that's back, but I read some, you know, there's all this stuff on blogs and post these days, and one of them was Future Trends, and, and one was low pyrazine Sauvignon Blanc. And I'm behind that. At Sidebar, that's what we do. On the Cabernet front, you have several trends. First off is not acidifying. People didn't realize, I mean, you know, O'Brien is pH 4.0 in a ripe vintage. People didn't know that. I mean, they weren't buying the, the wines and analyzing them. And I did, like even a vintage like 82, I would buy a bunch of palm rolls, because we're now making Merlot at Matanzas Creek. It was 84, 85. And it's like, I'd do a tasting on 10 wines. And I still remember five of them were really good and five of them were weak. We'd analyze and all the weak ones had pHs in the 3.4 range and all the good ones had pHs in the 3.6, 3.8 range. It's like, wow, what does that tell you? So that knowledge kind of spread, and so people stopped acidifying their Cabernets so much. So that's a big change. Then you have the ripeness thing. That's a complex issue. People say, oh yeah, in the old days, all the, all the wines were you know, 12.5% alcohol. Well, first off, you have to realize that you can't trust what's on the label. And the, the law was for the imports for Bordeaux, the law was, you know, it's like, well, 11 to 14%. Is one tax class. And so they put twelve and a half percent on everything, because so they never had to change it because you had plus or minus one and a half at fourteen and below. And I remember being at a lunch with Andy Beckstoffer once and he passed around a postcard, it was an aerial view of Napa Valley during harvest. It was a sea of red leaves. Leaf roll virus. Leaf roll virus inhibits photosynthesis. I mean, if a leaf is red and not green, it can't photosynthesize. There's no chlorophyll anymore. So 24 bricks used to be a maximum if, you know, you, you harvest at 23, 24, because that's all that the vineyards would give you. So this is another aspect of the phloxera type B, so-called, it wasn't just phylloxera, it was the failure of AXR, rootstock, Aramon times ripestris. And um, the new healthy plantings allowed people to go much higher in bricks starting really about the 97 vintage. And people started picking the 27, 28. They hated pyrazines. And, you know, critics gave those wines high scores. I think think we're in a period where people are pulling back, you know, from that. It's more balanced wine, which is, I think, kind of what we've always made. Never been harvesting at 30 bricks and watering back and all this stuff. Pinot, the big difference on Pinot is early on, California producers made it like Cabernet aeratively, and they'd leave it in barrels 18, 20 months. They'd dry it out and they'd aerate it. And Pinot, if Chardonnay is the red wine of whites, Pinot is the white wine of reds. It's delicate. It has literally a feeble phenolic structure, it has no acylated pigments, and so that's why it's paler in color. So, a big change with Pinot is not aerating as much, and who deserves credit for that, really, is Dick Ward and his partner, David Graves, of Sainsbury Winery, because they were the first ones to bottle Pinot before the next vintage, like Chardonnay. It hadn't been done. And so, that change from tired, dried-out, oxidized Pinot Noir to fresh Pinot Noir, along with the shift to cooler climate, you know, in Napa... You weren't planting in Rutherford anymore, you were planting in Carneros. And then in Sonoma, you weren't planting Alexander Valley, you were planting in Sebastopol. That's been a big shift for Pinot Noir. Syrah is a chameleon of a variety because it can succeed in a broad range of climates. And in a warmer climate, it can be jam in a bottle. In a cooler climate, it shows off its more uh, rotundone, its more peppery uh, bacon fat characteristics. Syrah seems to just absorb sulfur. If we give the same addition to Cabernet and Syrah, we'll get a a higher return, not only free but total with Cabernet. And Syrah, we had the sulfur, and it's like, where where did it go? I don't understand. I'm not a bad wine chemist, but I don't understand that at all. So Syrah just absorbs sulfur more. On the other side, I would say that in my experience dealing with other winemakers with Pinot Noir, many of them are very afraid of adding too much sulfur to the Pinot because famously it bleaches color and they're concerned about the color. I don't share that perspective. And we treat you know, we treat all our wines the same. We, we maintain 30 parts free so that we don't have any Brett, and the wine ages for a long time.
0: You know, sometimes people talk about reduction and Syrah. Do you think that that tendency of Syrah
1: to sort of absorb sulfur is related to that reduction in Syrah? Syrah does the way we make it and the way I like it. It rides sort of a knife edge of reduction. It just does. And sometimes it crosses over and we need to splash it, which never happens with Pinot. But with Syrah, sometimes we do. And how that's related to the sulfur uptake, I just don't know.
0: You developed a red wine portfolio for Ramey Wine Cellars. That includes Syrah and that includes Cab. And if I'm reading the Cab right, it seems to have an approachability that is a little unique.
1: Oh, well, thank you. And yet, analytically, it's a very tannic wine. All of our wines are what the French would call Vendigal. I mean, all the reds spend about three weeks on the skins. They're fully extracted. Analytically, the Cabernets in particular. But there's a difference between quantity of tannin and quality of tannin that only recently have some of us really come to appreciate. And um, if you have uh, what Jean-Claude Berrouet called les tannins mûres, les tannins, tannins souple, mature, supple tannins. If you have that, then you can extract them and still have a, a supple, approachable wine. If you have immature, hard tannins, um, they don't ever really age out in the cellar. So if you if you harvest prematurely, I mean, you don't have to go over, you don't have to start getting pruny or porty characters but if you harvest prematurely, those hard, green, grippy tannins may never resolve themselves.
0: No, I certainly understand that point, And I think that that's something that really came to the fore in, in the 90s in California for Cabernet. People yeah. were saying, let's get some, some softer tannins. Yeah. But your cab in particular, it seems to me like the character is different, like texturally different. And I sometimes wonder if that has to do with lees or with something else.
1: It does have to do. I, being trained in Bordeaux, I was always skeptical uh, when, for example, the Renancourt started bringing Burgundian techniques of lees contact to the right bank. Um, But in '06, we experimented, and damned if we didn't like. You know, now there's not as much lees as if you ferment a white wine in a barrel when all the lees is there. There's not as much. But we drain, and then the next day, if we rack clean out of the tank that we drained into, there's maybe a couple inches of what looks like raspberry yogurt, and that's just yeast. And because we don't punch down, we sprinkle, so the cap, we don't break up the fruit a lot. So there's no, no berries, there's no debris, it's just the lees, And then we take that, and again, if it flows, it goes. The next day, we rack from the bottom valve. So... If If it flows, we take it, goes into the other tank, and we put the propeller mixer in, the Guth is the brand name, and mix it to barrels so that that lees is all distributed. And yeah, I think that the yeast in the red wine integrates the oak better and provides a textural suppleness more so than without it. What's the temperature at that point? Well, we're a little odd. We ferment cool. 72, not cool, but... It's cool for some people. It's cool for some people. That's optimal for yeast. What we're focusing on is getting the sugar gone, the fermentation function, and then we start heating. Once the sugar's gone, we start heating, which is sort of the extraction function. Now, of course, there's a big overlap. It's not like we got white-red wine and then suddenly the color comes out, but uh, what we taste as we start raising that temperature about three degrees a day to about 87 final temperature, and then it might spend three, four, five, six days at 87. We continue to pump over a little bit twice a day, just about a quarter volume, but the mid palate fleshes out. Yeah, so we're a little unusual in that. We've sort of, in a way, separated the fermentation function from the extraction function. I got that from Michel Roland. I analogize a lot that making red wine is a lot like making tea, you know, and you're dealing with phenolic compounds, you're dealing with temperature, you're dealing with time, you're dealing with degree of subdivision of the particles, you know, do you have whole tea leaves, do you have chopped up tea leaves, do you have powdered tea, and what we want is using time and temperature and flow through to infuse the compounds that are in the skins into the wine rather than beat up the fruit, you know, grind and tear and make a lot of finely subdivided particles that would give a broad spectrum extraction. I'm, I'm a little of a maverick here too. For example, our Pinot Noir, other than the whole cluster, we make exactly like our Cabernet. It's pumped over, it's three weeks on the skins, more or less, depending on taste cool ferment, warmer extraction post, I think that punching down too often beats up the, the cap. And then those finely subdivided solids can give you a broad spectrum extraction that might include bitter compounds uh, that you're not necessarily looking for.
0: And what about stirring leaves, like batonage on red?
1: Yeah, we do that. You know, with Chardonnay, we do that once a week while we're waiting for mallow, and then, and then just when we top once a month, but it's not important. With reds, we do it about uh, every two months, and we're, we're not topping during that time. And then we top, stir, adjust the sulfur, bung it again, and then depending on how the wine tastes, the next time we may rack and splash, we may not on the Cabernet.
0: Maybe we could talk about the different Chardonnays that you make for Remy. First, we could start with the different vineyards involved because you work with a number of famous vineyards like Hyde, Hudson, Rocchioli, Dutton, which you blend in. Martinelli. So, what do you ask them to do?
1: Well, uh, one example would be that we don't like them to strip leaves. A lot of times you walk into a vineyard and the fruit zone's all stripped on both sides, the fruit's all exposed. I don't like that. So, we ask that they cut laterals between the fruiting wire and the first catch wire to open it up for airflow. If it's in a high mildew pressure area and the roads are running north-south, we may let them take some leaves off on the east side, but not on the west side. I'm almost more concerned about sunburn. But then it's, they have to keep the mildew down, so it's a balancing act. Uh, we work with them on irrigation, fertilization, and generally try to minimize that. And if we can, which isn't always, but we work with them on on eliminating Roundup in the vine row and going to mechanical weed removal in the vine row, because what happens, we're not concerned about the chemicals so much in in Roundup. I think that's overblown, but annual use creates a dead zone because it kills all the roots. And so you don't have the roots. And so then you don't have the mycorrhizae and you don't have the bacteria and and the fungi in the soil. The soil is not as alive there. So we work on that with them. When you're working with Chardonnay, is it really
0: yield sensitive, or how
1: does it respond? So the question of yields is has been simplified in the popular press, and the way to think of it is again going back to the vigor capacity of the soil. There's a, I would say, a yield to quality curve, like a normal distribution for any soil type, and that normal distribution curve shifts higher or lower depending on the vigor capacity of the soil, and if you Over thin, take too much fruit off of a vine so it's out of balance. What happens is it starts to fight back with vegetation. You get more laterals, you get more second crop. That vine is trying to express itself. The roots, the power in the roots are pushing out. It's got to have an outlet. So that's the problem with somebody trying to say, oh, I can walk into any vineyard in the world and thin it to two tons an acre and make great wine. Bullshit. It's not true. For every vineyard site, there's an optimal quality. And for rich sites, it's better higher than if it were lower. It's not a simple answer and it, everything depends on, on the site you're working with.
0: So you're someone who I think believes in incremental improvement. In Absolutely, wants. yeah. You know, because it's not everyone. Some people look at it differently. Some people are like, okay, so this is the deal that my grandfather did. This is the deal. Or other people are like, okay, kit and caboodle, we're moving that way but you seem to look at incremental changes over time. And so what's the next thing that you're curious
1: about that you're working on? What's the next technique that you're like, "Huh, maybe. <laughs> well, I wish I knew." <laughs> we didn't do a lot of experimentation this year. We did with Pinot, we did do uh, two tanks where one without dry ice and one with dry ice. A lot of people use dry ice. I'm not I'm not convinced, but you know, we'll see. Honestly, you know, after 40 years, one of the reasons that, I, you know, I don't do wholesale change is because incrementally we've gotten to a pretty good spot, I think. I can rationalize and justify chemically and physiochemically everything we do and why we do it. And it's come through a series of these steps, you know, one variable comparison. You can only have one variable. you got to set it up. And then you taste it and you decide, okay, do I like this or do I like that? And then you shift and you do more of that. But most winemakers are afraid of of doing an experiment because they're more afraid of something going wrong. And I always say, You're not gonna make bad wine, you're just changing one thing. And it's fine. And if you don't do that, you're not gonna learn, you're not gonna progress. We get one vintage a year, and I gotta make it count. So yeah, we always try to do a little something to to keep moving the ball downfield.
0: David Ramey believes in one variable comparisons and his first was the desire not to wear a tie to work. Thank you very much for being (laughs) here today. Levy, thank you. It's been fun. David Ramey of Ramey Wine Cellars and then also Sidebar Cellars. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey,
1: You know, we've experimented numbers of years now with trials with optical sorters and, and getting every last jack out. And i am sort of come to the conclusion, those wines, they're more monolithic and less interesting. I sometimes think we can go too far and lose some complexity and, and flavor interest in making the flavor profile too narrow.